0: Back to Dr. Knight's uh, uh, bio. We, um, We have Dr. Michael G. Knight on our podcast with us today. You know, throughout his career, Dr. Knight has been a champion for health equity and has been instrumental in developing community health education programs throughout the United States. Dr. Knight served as the 48th national president of the Student National Medical Association and currently serves as the founder and president of the Renewing Health Foundation, a nonprofit organization working to empower urban minority communities through health education. He has served on various boards and committees of organizations, such as the American Medical Association, where he serves on the Council of Ethical and Judicial Affairs and the National Medical Association where he currently serves as Region 2 trustee. From a population health and health policy point of view, Dr. Knight, why are minority women still becoming very sick? or dying just from being pregnant in the 21st century United States? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. That is a critical example of racial and ethnic health disparities, okay? And so when we talk about health disparities, all that says is that the health of one population is different than the other right so the health and the possible health outcome of one group is different than the other so if i say to you uh, a woman is more likely to have breast cancer than a man that is a disparity but that's not necessarily unfair or unjust because of a genetic reason right women have more breast tissue they have more more likelihood receptors for for breast cancer however if there is a difference in the population and it is systematic, it's unfair, it's unjust, and it may be related to social, economic factors or the sur- social circumstance or economic circumstance of that patient, then that changes the conversation. And so the issue with the maternal mortality is that it is a, a very prime example of health inequity in the United States. So we know that African-American women are much, much, much more likely to die or have pregnancy related complications when compared to their majority counterparts. And the reasons for that are many. You know, oftentimes we only point to social determinants of health, socioeconomic status. But in this case, studies have shown that even when we control or compare women who have the same economic status, the same access, same insurance, Black women are still more likely to die. So what is the reason behind that? we have to think about the root causes to health inequity. We have to think about uh, different ways that uh, patients are able to access care, but also we have to think about implicit bias. We have to think about uh, systematic or structural uh, pillars that uh, work to value or promote wellness in certain patients and not others. In medicine, I believe that Everyone who goes into medicine, for the most part, I would say 99.9% of us are committed to doing the best we can for all patients. I don't believe that individuals are coming into medicine saying, because you look like this, I'm not going to take care of you, right? However, when we think about our implicit bias, subconscious beliefs in who we value and who if we don't, we have to make decisions. And so when I decide, who am I going to spend that extra 15 minutes with in clinic? Right. Who am I going to call and say, did you go in and get that test that I ordered? Who am I going to say, listen, I want to see you next week. I'm going to fit you in. And who am I going to say, I don't have any availability. You can see one of my colleagues who doesn't know you or I may have to see you a few weeks later. We're making those kind of decisions and how we view people. Our perception impacts that. And so I don't think that explains everything. But I do believe that the way that people receive care has had an impact on the maternal mortality rates. I also think that how people have access to things like healthy food, physical activity, healthy communities, and the environment, pollution, okay, chronic stress from discrimination, from economic instability all of those things play a role. And we know that unfortunately, uh, the African-American community is much more likely to, to have been under or be affected by things related to economic instability, housing insecurity and food insecurity.
0: Wow, wow, well, wow. Well. Thank you for that. We're gonna to touch on that again. And um, hmm, hmm. You know, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about your bio. Um, you know, doc, uh, Dr. Knight also uh, uh, leads the expansion and development of community primary care in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. Uh, Dr. Knight is both certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine and has practiced in weight management clinics and continues to practice clinically at GW. Dr. Knight has been an invited speaker on obesity and its effect on health and well being on radio, in news, media, and at various medical and community events internationally and throughout the United States. So let's now pivot to your other main specialty. We tell patients, you know, you are obese, go exercise, watch what you eat and have a happy life. Is it indeed true that lifestyle interventions alone are often not effective for patients with obesity because the biological response to restoring weight to the highest sustained level becomes more robust as weight loss increases.
1: Absolutely. What we have to understand, which is that as a healthcare institution or the healthcare field, we have not acknowledged obesity as an actual chronic disease or have an actual pathophysiologic process until 2012. So for the longest time, it's just been a number on the scale. And like you said, We've said if you have excess weight, it's because you're you're eating too much and you're not exercising enough. And so what I what we tell our patients, eat less, exercise more. And I have patients that come to me that have been hearing that for decades. They eat one meal, two meals a day. They may be exercising. They have significant excess weight. And you say, Dr. Knight, how does that even happen? How can someone be 100 pounds overweight and you're telling me that they're not eating? more than me. So let's think about this. Everyone has what we call a set point. It's kind of like a thermostat when it comes to your weight, okay? And your body has a very, very, very well-designed way of keeping you at that set point. So an individual who doesn't have excess weight, okay, or does not have a lot of excess weight, we may believe that the reason that I don't have it is because I know exactly how much to eat and I'm burning all of my energy. We would have to be as exact as a half of a potato chip in the amount of calories we take in and burn to match it every day to not gain weight. So the reason I'm not gaining weight is not because I'm actively doing that. Our body is telling us when we are hungry and when we are full. Just because my stomach has food in it does not mean that I feel full. And just because my stomach is empty doesn't mean I'm going to feel hungry. I'll give you an example. There are people who are breakfast people. And so they wake up, 8 o'clock, they are hungry. They need a breakfast. And if they don't eat, they're going to get a headache. They're going to be hangry, as they say, all day long. Me, I'm not a breakfast person. I can go until 12 o'clock and not feel hungry. Does that mean that there's something in my stomach? No, there's nothing in my stomach because I've had dinner the night before at 7 or 8 p.m. So what's the difference? My hormones are not telling me that I am hungry. So when we think about hormones like ghrelin, um, like a number of others that work in our system, they tell our brain that we are hungry. When we start eating certain types of food, then can tell our brains that we feel full. Many people with excess weight, it's completely different. They are set at a set point that their hormones are going to tell them that they're hungry until they've eaten enough calories to maintain their weight. So it's a physiologic and biologic process. And so just telling someone to eat less, it's almost like you're telling someone to starve because they are feeling hungry all day. So sometimes we assume that people who have excess weight are eating until they feel full and then they're gonna get another plate and eat. Many of them are eating until they feel satiated, the same way that we do, right? If I give you, if I cook a meal and give you a plate, you're gonna eat till you say, okay, that's enough, I feel full. And you do it and you stay at the same weight. And that's how other individuals are eating the same amount and they're not feeling full, they're feeling hungry. And so for you to overcome that, many times it takes more than just your motivation. Just like if someone has diabetes or someone has high blood pressure, we don't just tell them, get motivated. We say, I'm gonna help you. You still gotta get motivated, but I'm also gonna help you. And so with with obesity, we consider things like surgical procedures, pharmaceutical interventions or medications, in addition to the foundation of dietary chains and physical activity.
0: Wow, thank you for that. You know, it is understandable that the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, and medical community have been historically slow to adopt the use of current weight loss medications, secondary to a history of harmful medications and their use in the past, such as fen-fen, Um, A previously approved combination of fenfluramine and fenteramine, which was widely prescribed but caused pulmonary hypertension, that is high blood pressure within the lungs, and heart valve disease. But there are new medications that appear to be safer to help treat obesity. Since when have we had these very effective medications around? And why can't we just add it to the water?
1: So good, good question. Um, We have had FDA approved safe medications for weight management for over a decade, over a decade. And now we have even more effective. So here was the challenge. Like you said, there were some bad players in the past that had a negative health outcome. And so that said, forced our industry to say, you really need to test these agents, really need to understand what they're doing to people. But what we have seen initially were medications that we use for other things that we realize cause medication. And then we turn around and use them for weight management. So for two of the medications that we use, we use those same medications for other things. So I'll give you an example. There's a medication, generic name, topiramate, used for migraines prevention for a, lot, a long, long time. Uh, sometime in the past have been used for seizures, but also people are losing weight. So now it's approved as a combination with fentramine for weight management, a medication we've used and we know is safe. The same thing. For uh, another medication that com- combines bupropion, which we've used for mood in the past, and now naltrexone, which we've uh, used for habit, form, and behavior, together, weight loss. So you have two agents now that we use these medications for decades. We know they're safe, but now we can use for weight management. We have newer medications um, that we use, such as semaglutide, that have been approved for conditions like diabetes. We use it for diabetes all the time. But when it's approved for weight loss, then all of a sudden, we don't wanna pay for it. We don't wanna use it. So is it safety or is it something else? And I think that when it were new medications or medications that were only for weight loss, it may have been about safety. But now that it's the same medications that we use for other things, we have to ask is it more about stigma? Is it more that we have individuals who are in these payers who are saying, You don't need a medication to lose weight. We shouldn't have to pay for this. You should just get up off the couch. You should just get away from the fridge and lose the weight on your own. And that's what is. There is no other medical condition where we say we don't cover anything to treat you. I literally get denial letters from my patients all the time from insurance companies who say we have an exclusion that we don't pay for any medication for obesity. It would almost be like saying that you have an insurance that said we don't pay for cancer treatment or we don't we don't pay for blood pressure pills. You would say then you shouldn't be in the insurance business game because this is a medical condition. So there's work to be done for us to be on the same page and acknowledge obesity as the chronic medical disease that it is and also be able to fund treatments that are safe and effective.
0: Well, thank you. Um, Now, just in layman's terms, why does it seem that these new current medications are very good at treating obesity? You talked about some of their safety profiles. How do they work um, in layman's terms?
1: Yeah, as we've learned more about what causes obesity, we've learned about uh, hormonal challenges. We've learned about central um, brain pathways. We've learned about the fat cells themselves, which many people don't realize. Fat cells are actually endocrine organs. Fat cells release cytokines and hormones. And so, when we have fat cell dysfunction or adipocyte dysfunction, we see changes in the body. When we think about obesity, it's related to over a hundred medical conditions, and it's not just because someone has excess weight on them it's because the physiology changes. The adipocytes or the fat cells become dysfunctional and they cause changes that affect your heart, they affect lung, they affect the pancreas, they affect the body. So these new medications are able to utilize the knowledge that we have to change the narrative on obesity. So for example, we have a medication that we approve for diabetes. It's used, it reduces insulin resistance, it improves sugar control. So you'll say, well, why would we use that for obesity? We realize that insulin resistance is a large player in why many patients are dealing with obesity on a regular basis. And so something that addresses insulin resistance is going to have a benefit. Another thing that we know is that, for example, when someone has weight loss surgery, they almost immediately can come off of insulin. If they had diabetes, you say, well, how did that happen? They haven't lost any weight. We understood that there are certain hormones like called GLP-1 that was increased and led to that sugar control. So now that hormone is now turned into a medication and that medication gives you weight loss and sugar control, similar to what happens during surgical procedures. So we're learning more and developing tools to target the things that we have identified as being impactful for obesity.
0: Thank you. You know, um, I pull from the Rosa and colleagues paper of international lack of equity in modern obesity therapy, the critical need for change in health policy. You know, as um, also as Thomas and colleagues noted, although 45% of men and women in the United States are candidates for treatment, for medical treatment. Only one to 2% of adults with obesity received anti-obesity medications, in sharp contrast to the 8.4% of U.S. adults diagnosed with diabetes, of whom 86% received some kind of medication therapy. Do you want to speak a little bit more to that like you've done before?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that that statistic outlines is the role that healthcare providers play. It's not just that patients don't want medication. Oftentimes, they don't know about it, but our healthcare providers are not prescribing it. They're not even having a decision because we have a large percentage of healthcare providers who believe that patients do not need medications to lose weight that means we have a lot more work to do to educate healthcare providers many individuals do not get much health, uh, obesity training or nutrition training in medical school or health professional school so we have to make sure that our healthcare providers are aware of the tools and the necessity of using them that's what i think speaks to it so it's making sure our providers know about it, know what's needed, and then prescribe, but also that insurance will pay for it. If the insurance can't cover it, patients are not going to pay for it if they don't have the funds. And so that rate, that low rate of intervention is not going to improve unless we address that.
0: So, but will, will it really break the bank of the insurance companies to make this available or, you know, is there more going on? Is there, you know, breed or average somewhere? I mean, where where, where, where is the problem with making this available at an affordable cost to people? Yeah.
1: So a couple of things. I think there's work to be done with our pharmaceutical industry to make sure that new medications are affordable. One of the challenges is that many of these medications are new, meaning they're on patent. And so that allows companies to charge very, very, very high numbers for them. Now, yes, the companies have invested into developing these medications, but if we want them to be accessible to everyone, they have to be affordable. Number two, we have to think about um, you know, the insurance. If you don't pay to reduce obesity, you're still gonna pay, because you're gonna pay for the diabetes, you're gonna pay for heart failure, you're gonna pay for the kidney failure, Gonna pay for the stroke and a heart attack. So you choose when you want to pay. Unfortunately, the healthcare system is focused on sick care, not focused on prevention. And so we'll say, oh, "Well, I can't pay. I don't want to pay for medication to reduce obesity." But I've just told you that obesity is related to over a hundred conditions. The healthcare system spends billions of dollars, not millions, billions of dollars every year on obesity-related complications. So we're already spending the money. So it's do we want to spend the money in prevention or do we want to spend the money after the fact when patients are suffering?
0: Well, and I did do some research in that uh, one of the medications, uh, a pack uh, costs like $1,350 uh, com- in the U.S. compared to the same medication being given for about 99 99- dollars in the United Kingdom so you know that is out there